0: Welcome back to the Money Markets and Macro Podcast brought to you by Atticus Capital. I'm your host, Liam Hennessy. I want to start out by first apologizing for the skipped episode last week. Um, I am, as many of you may be aware, I am a student uh, up in... Minnesota. I'm finishing up my last year, so I've got a few more weeks. Well, three more weeks. And it's been a little hectic. Finals, projects, so on and so forth. You get the idea. So it's been a little harder to get around to the type of research and focus I'd like to do for the podcast that I would normally conduct. Soon enough, though, that will be squared away. Today we have very interesting very interesting discussion on a couple of fronts. um, I was doing research in one realm and then that research through the references list threw me into a whole nother field and now it's a a rabbit hole of reading IMF and BIS working papers. So (laughs) we'll get into that today. As we like to do, we'll start out with the markets. A quick overview since I know we haven't covered it recently. Uh, I just did a quick scan. I'm recording this on the 16th. So a quick scan of how we closed out last week, the total market, it seems. mm. So when I see this pattern in the marketplace and, and again, it's, I know it's a little difficult since I'm not showing you my screen. So it's hard for me to, to pinpoint what it is and what trends and, Patterns it is that I'm specifically looking at, but when I'm looking at this S&P, or when I'm looking at the Dow Jones, or when I'm looking at the NASDAQ, when I'm looking at these big indexes, even when I'm looking at specific stocks, um, and I know we don't do specific stocks on this podcast, that's more out of precaution, I don't really like to give, well I don't give investment advice in any capacity, you know, I have no capacity or ability to do so. But stock-specific stuff, that mostly will come into, you know, being able to show and visualize what it is and and case study. So you'd have to kind of see when, for say, we're looking at Apple or Microsoft or uh, whatever stock it is, those are the first ones that came to mind. But back to what I'm saying. In the indexes, we're seeing this big... We're not really big, but we're seeing this sort of stable resumptive pattern. And I'm looking at the weekly chart for the S&P. And what I'm seeing here sort of starting in early October of 2022 reminds me a lot of what we saw back in early June of 2019 a little bit of the same pattern obviously there's a lot more volatility you could even say it's a little reminiscent of the pattern between august 2021 and may of 2022 although that pattern is a little different because that pattern was the end of a bull run into a corrective pullback. What I'm seeing here, maybe even if we go back all the way to the very fun times of 2008, it looks a little similar. The pattern I'm seeing now looks a little similar to the pattern that was presented in March of 2008, and interesting enough, it coincides with March and this was the the march effect we've talked about about this before we saw a little bit of it interesting enough we didn't see the march effect take place in the stock market we saw this sort of march contraction this sort of bottleneck supply problem all of that show up in the credit markets the liquidity markets the banking system so I had some, some some suspicions of things going wrong in March, simply because that's the bottleneck period. I had originally thought they would present themselves in the stock market, well, they presented themselves in the bond market, the treasury market, the banking sector. But regardless to say, patterns looking relatively similar, I'm just making a note of interesting correlations between time and some pattern uh, overlap cohesion from prior market drawdowns, especially prior market cycles where there was heavy credit contraction. So, the S&P, let's get into the numbers here. We've spent five and a half minutes blabbering on about you know this correlation and that correlation the S&P at 413763 it's trading right at one could argue a double top from where we traded back this is well that the exact same level where the S&P peaked on January 23rd sorry January 30th excuse me January 30th is exactly the same as almost pretty much 1 for 1, 137.07, 137.63. So right at where we are before, this is where the supply is heaviest, right from sort of one thirty or 4,137 up to the gap fill um, back from August at 1 or 4,225 and it goes up a little bit from there. So we are in supply we'll see, interesting to note the typical pattern here of higher highs, higher lows. That's typically a good sign of a continuing trend. So we set our first low in October, second low in December, third low in March, and then obviously the corresponding highs between them. Those are all rising lows. The two highs in between were rising highs. This is the third one. So if this cycle's high, right, from the March 13th low to April 10th, if this cycle's high, this sort of trend's high is not above 4195 is where we peaked out at the last high, it's very possible we see the trend shift and reverse and head in the other direction. Now, it's interesting to note that over the past week, uh, investor Warren Buffett has announced he is deinvesting from uh, many of his bank investments, bank stocks, bank holdings—that's he been, that he's been holding on to for 25, 30 years. I think he sees, and he's reading that he leaves, and he realizes that this isn't a Silicon Valley bank problem, this isn't a Signature Bank problem, this isn't simply you know a Credit suite problem. This is a global monetary problem. We'll discuss a little bit more about that going forward here today. But keep that in mind as the stock market continues to decide whether or not it wants to euphorically rally into the ether or realize the and the seriousness, and gravity of the current problems in the banking system. Moving on, Nasdaq 1379, so 13,079. Very interesting. Uh we did get higher than the January 30th highs. Uh the Nasdaq is doing very, very well. Interesting to note, we also have a gap fill range on the nasdaq at 13 to 25 we can very likely get there it looks like we pretty much closed that gap um on the third of april so or the week of the third excuse me if i'm saying specific days and it's the week of that day because of the the candles that i'm looking at here um If we want to see a, 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 if we get to see a double top, that would occur around thirteen thousand six hundred, right around that level. Maybe we get there. Nasdaq is faring much better, doing much better than the Standard and Poor's index. So we'll see if we can get near fourteen thousand. I don't think that's going to be in the cards, Um, but it's very possible. We'll see. J.P. Morgan had good earnings, so if the, you know, if earnings kind of comes through and The companies do better than expectations, then it's very possible that the market, at least the capital markets, the credit or not credit markets, the capital markets can ignore to some degree the purveying and underlying fundamental economic problems that are presenting themselves in the CPI and the PPI and the labor data and the payroll data and all this other data, global data, trade data, imports, exports. So on and so forth. This market can essentially ignore all of it so long as earnings are good, and then there's a little more cash in the system, in the marketplace, buybacks, other incentivized programs. Um, I know we've talked a lot about the labor stuff, the job sharing, job or you know, uh, employment freezing, or hiring freezes. So on and so forth. You get the picture. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, especially when it comes to layoffs. All of those different things kind of culminating into this pre-crisis era phase where expenses are low or falling. There's disinflationary effects throughout the economy. Things are looking a little better, maybe. People are unsure. Market can rally through that ambiguity. Dow Jones. 33,886 right back into the range of the prior pennant. After seeing a significant sell-off out of the pennant range, we bottomed out at 31,800 right around there, rallied right back up about 200 points. Now we're right back in the middle of that consolidation range. Does it get above 34,600, 500? I don't really see that happening. Again, depends on how well the market wants to take the next couple of weeks. We'll see how that goes. The high I really see for the Dow Jones is right around 34,450. That's sort of that top line expectations that I've got. Of course, your mileage may vary, as one of my professors loves to say, and something that I've picked up, (laughs) and started to use. So we'll see, again, the the all-time high, only 37000 So Dow Jones, again, despite the the recent sell-off and all the different problems occurring throughout the global and domestic economy and the marketplace, Dow Jones has been doing remarkably well. Very stable, very solid. If you want to not lose a whole lot of money and not make a whole lot of money, I guess this has been the place, at least since... Roughly April of 2021, you'd be, well, you'd be flat had you invested in the Dow Jones two years ago. Today, essentially. The Russell, uh, well, not in the same boat as the other three indexes. Still down 27% from the all-time highs. Trading at the same level, essentially, that we were trading at Um, well, a little bit above where we were in 2018 and 19, but essentially there, the Russell faring fairly hard. I, you know, the Russell, that makes a lot more sense. It has a lot more exposure to the small regional banks. I think a lot of that fear, deposit fear and so on and so forth has trickled in and hasn't allowed the small cap index to rally to the same degree as the other indexes. Again, the smaller companies and, and during periods periods of economic ambiguity, this some that sort of term we've discussed quite often on this podcast. And I would even argue now we're sort of out of that ambiguity phase and it's more to the, the realists phase of this isn't going well. The economy isn't in good shape. It's no longer ambiguous, but And I think you're starting to see that shift, especially with, you know, the Warren Buffets. And it really takes until Warren Buffett and all these big investors and, you know, the the CNBC crowd to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, things aren't going well here, but, you know, they're usually behind the curve by, you know, what, six months? I'm not saying Buffett is. I'm just saying the broader CNBC audience, which are seemingly a lot of people. Um, Let me not go into a whole different side discussion about CNBC, but regardless to say, russell a lot more exposed to the downside a lot more risk on the downside Um, and again it it also has to do with investor confidence and investor fears investors who are seeking less risk more risk aversion they will likely move their money out of small caps and you know i'd like to see the fund flows for the the russell index but i would assume it's pretty significant the outflows but moving their money clearly and investing it in these big names. You can see that in the Dow Jones, how stable it's been, how elevated it's been relative to the rest of the indexes, the rest of the marketplace, and the recovery trade specifically in the NASDAQ. You can see that there's a lot of capital in the Dow, and there's increasing capital in the NASDAQ, while the S&P has been sort of flat and the Russell's been very damped. So, again, I'll mention here, Russell's trading at seventeen ninety one hasn't gone much further than where we were back in October of 2022. The U.S. dollar trading down from the 105.36 that we got up to on the 13th of, or sorry, excuse me, the week of the 27th of February. So February of 2023, the dollar got up to 105, and then it has been considerably lower from there, right back down to where we were at the lower end of the range at 101.58. Interesting to note we will see and can do a little more discussion on the US dollar today as we get into some of these working papers. But interesting to note the occurrence what's occurring, excuse me, I should say in the US dollar coinciding with how the 10-year treasury is trading over the same period of time, the yields on the 10-year trade or treasury have gone from 3.25 to 3.5, so lots of net selling. Obviously, yields are up, bond prices down. After you know, uh, you know, following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the the ten-year Treasury yield was at 4.05, and between March 10th and What's this, April 6th, yields fell. Let me see if I can get actual measuring tape here. Yeah, yields fell by 75 basis points. So, I mean, that's a significant drop. Excuse me. Uh, Second only what occurred during November, of 2022 when yields fell on the 10 year from 422 down to 341 um the very significant fall and drop in the 10 year treasury yield now of course is nothing like what occurred between 2018 and 2020 the drop in 2020 was what, cataclysmic obviously you know when yields on the 10 year were at 1.98 and they fell all the way down to 0. Uh, for and logarithmically that's a, a, a much more significant um, collapse but we can also look at these nominally these yields nominally and you can see that it is rather significant yields are still up uh, extremely elevated but the trend looks rather interesting in the short term it looks like there is some declining pressure declining channel and we'll see if that continues but Nevertheless, moving on here, we've got. Oh, this is the one chart that I wasn't able to look at. So we have natural gas ring at $2.11. Hasn't moved anywhere since really Tuesday, March 28th. Uh, we can also take a look at oil. We're not going to do a whole lot of commodity discussion today. Oil trading at $82.52. Uh, doing very well. Gapped up after the 3rd of April. We have that discussion, we did a whole big coverage of OPEC cutting production, and obviously coinciding with that, oil prices have risen. Uh, we'll see how far they go. Interesting to note that one of the papers we're reading today, or that I was reading, that I'll mention today, uh, discusses the correlation between dollar, the U.S. dollar, the U.S. terms of trade, and commodity prices. Um, interesting that that correlation is reasserting itself dollar weaker commodity prices higher we see that in silver gold silver trading at 2546 still doing very well holding under 25 uh, and a half gold trading at 2015 we got all the way up to two thousand and sixty four uh, sixty five, 65 and sold off slightly but doing very well it's trading right where we were back in March of 2022, and back from where we were in July of 2020. The most interesting asset that I was looking at today was Bitcoin, trading at $30,470. is a long-running trend line from 2019, touches in 2020, and then touches again in June of 2022. At the current moment, the trend is touching right at the lower range of that trend line. The price is, is touching the lower end of that trend line. So this provides us with a very interesting opportunity of whether or not Bitcoin is going to make a substantial move higher and break through this trend resistance, which has been holding it back ever since, well, June of 2022. Although it's higher from where it was in June, it's still under that trend and it is clearly having some significant pressure effects pushing it lower. If it breaks through, very possible we can see Bitcoin get all the way back up nearing 50,000. I wouldn't be surprised if it breaks through this range. If it fails, very different story. If it fails here, if Bitcoin fails to break above the trend, very possible we see Bitcoin all the way back down to 20,000. Again, I'm no Bitcoin trader, I'm no Bitcoin investor. I've never owned, held, transacted, traded with any cryptocurrency in any capacity. I've always been dissuaded personally from investing in cryptocurrencies just as a result of skepticism of the market, a lot of different reasons, and we don't need to go into that discussion today. But keep an eye on Bitcoin. I should maybe even publish this chart just so it'll be visible for more people but keep an eye on this if you do trade bitcoin obviously you know what's going on here then it's very likely that you see the same pattern that i'm seeing here so okay the big discussion in the marketplace doesn't give us a whole lot of time to go through these working papers but there's one specifically that i'd like to mention here which is the, it's a BIS working paper, <clears throat> excuse me, number 1083, titled Commodity Prices and the U.S. Dollar by Daniel M. Reese from the Monetary Economics Department. This was a paper published in March of 2023. Um, I'll just read the abstract here and then go into a little bit of what the paper is discussing and the reason why I wanted to bring this up. So This paper says here, in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, rising commodity prices went hand in hand with a strengthening U.S. dollar. This was a sharp contrast to the usual relationship between commodity prices and the dollar. This paper presents evidence that post-COVID correlation patterns could become more common in the future. This conclusion rests on two observations. First, the U.S. dollar exhibits a close and stable relationship with the U.S. terms of trade. Second, the U.S. United States shift from being a net oil importer to a net oil exporter means that higher commodity prices now tend to raise the U.S. terms of trade rather than lowering them. Changes in the relationship between commodity prices and the U.S. dollar will have implications for commodity exports and importers alike. So, it's a rather lengthy working paper, and the author goes through a bunch of historical, excuse me, use cases and, and examples of how the US dollar has correlated, inversely correlated itself with commodity prices and how following 2020, there was a huge divergence and it wasn't simply 2020. A lot of it came from what began in 2016 and culminated in 2020 with this sort of explosion in both the monetary commodity, trade, transport, all of these different areas of global economic growth, development, function, all became topsy-turny, I guess you could say, for lack of a better word, along with the terms of trade, as the author mentions in this article, obviously that of more inward-looking, policy from the prior the trump administration which has somewhat continued in the biden administration you know chips act energy's a little different there's more of a focus now on sort of renewables and yada 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 you get the picture but nonetheless the focus seems to be relatively similar and that has impacted the core or not the correlation but the relationship between the u.s dollar and commodity prices that of which have become not really normalized but not so inversely correlated and that's essentially what the author goes through in the in the study here today so the author breaks down a bunch of different stochastic models and different methodological uh, means by assessing this there is a one actually very interesting um, calculation the author did here this was the The uh, simulation, this was the dollar dynamic simulation error. Um, let me see if I can find the, the proper bit here. I don't want to be reading a bunch of different uh, equations and inputs and outputs and so on and so forth. Um, but he mentions here, so given the, these recent results discussing one of the prior tables that he developed, It's natural to ask whether the recent co-movement of the U.S. dollar and commodity prices has been historically unusual. After all, while the model points out a statistically significant correlation between the U.S. dollar and commodity prices, their fit is not particularly tight. Perhaps the post-COVID episode was just one of the many times over the recent decades when the co-movement of commodity prices and the U.S. dollar diverged from its typical pattern. To address this question, the author constructed a historical simulation of the model. He calculated its fitted value in each month of the sample using the previous month fitted value as the lag-dependent variable relative to simply examining the model's residuals. The historical simulation isolates the predicted cove movement between commodity prices and the U.S. dollar, independent of other persistent influences on the dollar's value that may work through the model's lag-dependent variable. So you don't need to understand all of this craziness. Uh, but what's important here? So he says... The exercise reveals that the post-pandemic divergences of U.S. dollar and commodity price movements from their historical relationship was unprecedented. This is the important bit. Given the historical relationships, one would have expected the U.S. dollar to depreciate by around 7% between late 2020 and September of 2022. Instead, it appreciated by nearly 20%. At this time, the level of U.S. dollar was more than 30% stronger than had been predicted by the dynamic simulation, the largest gap on record. And this simulation goes all the way back to 1990. So what does all of this mean? Well, the author discusses it much further down after he gets through more models and more relationships and more correlations. He gets to the point where it's The post-2020 world, and you'll get why I'm bringing this up. The post-2020 world, on dollar terms, is very different than pre-2020. Something happened in 2020 specifically that switched the relationship of the U.S. dollar to the global economy. And what that switch was, it's really hard to tell. I think this author tries to dive into it a little bit here, discussing um, the three elements that the author discusses in this article is the the strength of the U.S. dollar exchange rate, the U.S. terms of trade, and uh, commodity prices. And I I think those are like the three big pillars and columns by which he makes the, the paper and sort of rationalizes the paper. You get the picture. But... Outside of that, something occurred in 2020 that shifted the dynamic of the U.S. dollar and the role that it played in facilitating trade throughout the global economy. And you could see that even during 2020 with the big supply problems, supply shocks, the trade problems, the container ships. And now obviously a lot of that was um, the restriction policies depending on the country, you know, Australia, New Zealand, California, the big ports, China, China. All of these places had big real world impact, economic impacts and restrictions and constraints on their trade, which impaired a lot of these different channels for, for functioning global economy. But throughout all of this, the way in which the dollar was utilized has been not so much transformed, but maybe expanded and then contracted in some areas, expanded in others. And, the reason I'm bringing this up today is because, and I will say before we get to that, this impacts, and the author mentions this, it impacts a lot for commodity importing and exporting countries. This is going to change the dynamic by which commodity exporting countries, if the U.S. dollar is now higher, or more closely correlated, positively correlated with The movement in commodity prices that changes the entire dynamic for how the globe, how the other countries, uh, exporting countries, commodity exporting countries, commodity importing countries, they're going to have to change the way that they facilitate their hedging, trading, positioning and transacting. If the one tool that they used for decades as a hedge against rising commodity prices or falling commodity prices, they'd inversely use the U.S. dollar as a hedge. But now if that dollar is strengthening commodity prices, that strengthens shortages, and if it weakens, that means looser financial conditions, lower commodity prices. It, it changes the entire dynamic for how commodity prices have worked and operated throughout the world. And I, he, the, the author mentions it here, and let me see if I can find it, because he gives a good sort of breakdown of how this, uh, yeah, in the last paragraph here it says, well, that's two. Let me just read these. The effects of an increased correlation between U.S. dollar strength and commodity prices are likely to be felt most acutely in commodity importing countries. For these countries, rises in U.S. dollar commodity prices will become more inflationary, with the contractionary effects on output exacerbated by a tighter global financial conditions, included by the U.S. dollar. Or sorry, induced by the U.S. dollar appreciation possibly offset by increased international competitiveness vis-a-vis the United States, as in the U.S. exporting more commodities, additionally with a rising dollar appreciation and rising commodity prices. It's, it's well, you saw how an inflation impact or how energy prices, simply energy, natural gas, oil, coal, lumber, impacted the European economy over the last two years. This is global in scale and scope. But commodity exporters will also be affected. If their exchange rates appreciate by less against the U.S. dollar during commodity booms and appreciate by less during busts, exchange rate movements may provide a less effective shock absorber for these countries than in the past. That's important. As a result more active macroeconomic stabilization policies may be needed to manage the economic consequences of commodity price movements. And this is where I want to try to tie it all together. I read this paper, and the first thing that came to mind was BRICS. What is it that the entire seemingly the entire global South and the rest of the non-Western world, what are they trying to do? They're trying to de-dollarize in some sense, in some capacity. India, as we mentioned, doing trade, trying to settle that trade with Malaysia in rupees. We've got South Africa operating more and working more with China and Saudi Arabia. We have discussions of a global commodity currency, which, I think this paper makes very clear it's going to be unlikely, if not pretty much impossible to do. But despite all of that, they're still discussing it. We've got increased trade and good relationships and facilitation between India and Russia. We're seeing more of the Russian economy export-import dependence to China, India, and those Eastern Bloc countries. I say Eastern Bloc countries, as in just non-Western. So you get the picture. And I think a lot of this. So at least in, in respect to how a lot of the public is seeing this discussion and this debate that oh, the the de-dollarization is at least from what I can tell is is an attack in some sorts on U.S. Hemet or you know hegemony around the world. Hegemony, excuse me, hegemony, hegemony, however you want to say it. This is a concerted effort to dethrone the king. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's simply these countries outside the Western Hemisphere, outside the the strong dollar funding markets of, you know, London, of Stockholm, of, you know, New York, of, you know, tokyo outside of these huge dollar funding centers it's very very difficult to access dollar liquidity in the rest of the world dollar liquidity that is used to facilitate a huge proportion of global trade and i think this paper gives us an insight to why it's hitting these brick countries To such a greater degree than i think people realize i don't think people realize to what extent that a lot of these countries are really being put under pressure i mean china is a huge commodity importer and what does this paper say ever since 2020 this is huge inflationary problem this is a big inflationary problem we've had a rising dollar rising commodity prices a rising dollar relative, I'm mean, you know, obviously the short term, past couple of weeks, couple of months, is nothing compared to long term trend, or an appreciating dollar, rising commodity prices. We're just looking at them, oil, precious metals, natural gas is a little wonky, yep, aluminum, metals, all these things. Those are hugely inflationary for commodity importing countries. That's why I don't think the Chinese or the Russians or the Indians are doing it intentionally to try to say, ah, well, we got to dethrone the dollar and dethrone the United States. I think it's a result of this new dynamic that has occurred following 2020 where the U.S. dollar has a non-inverse correlation, a less inverse correlation, a more positively correlated, you know, what would they call it, a a positively autocorrelated or a Non, a, uh, a non-negative autocorrelation. That's something of that sort. But you can see how this impacts these countries. And it forces them to try to find solutions outside of the dollar regime. And then you obviously have on top of it the sanctions. The sanctions on China. The sanctions on Russia. Those were just you know, pouring kerosene on what was already an existing, you know, contractionary fire of dollar liquidity outside of these dollar funding markets. So the question now is, okay, how does this work in the future? How, where do we go from here? Well, this doesn't even get into the domestic dollar problems, the banking problems, the the, the the whole euro dollar disinflationary contraction problems that we're seeing. I, you know, I didn't even tie together how all of this ties into what's occurring in the Chinese economic data, the PPIs. I mean, there's so much occurring on the day to day. This is why, you know, I try to do broad based coverage. You know, that's why I like to do these sort of overviews of these studies. Um, and these working papers that try to get an idea of what the bigger trends are, because I can't do the day to day stuff, especially as a student. That's it's it's a little too crazy I, that I always say Stephen Van Meter, Jeff Snyder, George Gaiman, Luke Grohman, Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden, uh, Daniel D. Martino, Booth, Peter Sch- there's. If you want to be in tune, up to date, day to day, know what's going on every second of every day, tune into those guys, those guys, those men and women. They are much older than I am, much wiser, have much more knowledge, have much more experience, and can give a better analysis of how day to day movements and and things operate together. Here on this podcast here, we try to look at money markets and macroeconomics and how it all ties together in the big picture. Now we're at (laughs) almost 40 minutes. I know I spent way too much time discussing the marketplace. Uh, We just haven't done that in a little while. And uh, looking through this BIS working paper, I I have two more papers up here too, two more research articles that are one research uh, article. And then one was um, a Interesting uh, study from 2014 uh, by Valencia Bruno and uh, Hyun Song Shin. Please, I, I'm screwing up that name. Uh, the other two studies were one cross-border banking and global liquidity from 2014, and then the other was a 2000 and I believe this is when this came out, a 2009 uh, study by Patrick McGuire and Gates von Peter titled The U.S. Dollar Shortage in, in, in Global Banking. The, so I was trying to tie together what we're seeing today with what occurred in the global liquidity system during 2007-2009. 10 right around that time we don't have time to go through these other two articles i will put them in the show notes for today's podcast i've tried to close this out before 40 minutes i know these become long um but there's there's a lot to consider here there's a lot to look forward to there's a lot coming in the future especially as the dollars correlation in relationship to the rest of the economy changes and the rest of the world tries to multipolarize. i guess you could say global trade. It'll be very interesting. I'm very excited to see what happens in the in the medium to long-term future. Obviously, it's going to be volatile. It might be a little fractious and there might be conflict. I mean, Obviously, you know, great economic volatility can often lead to great social, cultural volatility as well. And that can lead to war. It's always a possibility. And that's something that we should always try to, as every individual, community, country, nation as a whole, try to avoid. But... With all of that being said, thank you so much for listening, as always. And we will see you all on the next one.